This isn't easy for me to say. But you've been absent through some of the most crucial and challenging times of my life. I remember waiting for a phone call or an email. It was a time when I was unable to reach out and I felt the absence of your friendship. I asked myself, where is Greg in all of this? I remember hearing these words come out of the mouth of my closest friend as we sat in a coffee shop in Mount Vernon. Our conversation didn't start there. We had wandered lazily through much small talk and catching up before he went into some of the things that had been going on over the past year in his life. And as I sat and listened and mourned with him over the challenges, the loss, and the brokenness that had entered his life, and that he was still in the middle of, the conversation changed when he said, and you were nowhere to be found. Well, good morning. Welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Greg, and I'm one of the co-lead pastors here. I want to thank you for being here this morning as your presence and participation are absolutely crucial to the work that God is doing in the world. And so we're absolutely grateful that you would take time to be with us as we seek for and engage with God. Will you please join me as I pray? Dear Father, we give you great thanks for this day and for your presence in our lives. We ask that you would be with us and speak to us in a way that you only can when we are gathered together. God, there's something about us being together that is so good. And so I pray that in this time you would join us, you would knit our hearts, um, and we would build relationships with one another uh, that would be strong and reflect who you are. And so I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, you would do that and be with us. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just last week we started a new sermon series called Worth the Risk, where we're going to be spending some time looking at the risk involved in being committed to God in a culture that is not too fond of commitment at times. Last week, Ben introduced us to this reality that being committed to anything, let alone God, has inherent risks to it. We run into a huge wave of possibilities and options. What if something comes up that's more desirable, something that's more efficient, something that seemingly fits me better than what I've chosen? Often we're afraid to commit because it creates that reality that we're going to miss out on something else. And again, today, our world is full of possibilities. The landscape is ripe with opportunity and rich with promises. So nobody wants to commit so we can avoid missing out on that new thing that's going to come along. And even if we do commit, I find we're often committing at a very low level. Because we're always on the look for something better. And when you commit at a low level, you've got, always got an easy way out if things get difficult. Recently, uh, a Seattle Seahawks player, Earl Thomas, sought out the opposing team's coach after the game and said, if you all get the chance, come and get me. And everyone lost their minds. Earl Thomas, future Hall of Famer, isn't happy? What's happening here? What's happening with the Seahawks? And the sports media added fuel to this fire. And they talked endlessly about how Earl was unhappy here and he didn't want to be here. And then Earl and some of the other Seahawks players took a moment to kind of explain that well, the team was the Dallas Cowboys. And, and Earl had grown up a huge Cowboys fan and he played his college ball in Texas. And he had always had this dream of playing with the Cowboys. 
And he said, the general gist of my comment is that when the Seahawks are done with me, I would love to play in Dallas. It would be kind of the great way to end my career. It's always been my dream. And one sportscaster asked, why was this even a big deal, even if Earl did want to go play for the Cowboys and he wasn't happy here? And the other commentator said, well, because it's an issue of the heart, your teammates will always be wondering if you're fully committed. Are you all in? And I just remember as this was spinning around, that people expect that we're going to be non-committal, that we're going to jump to something else when a better offer comes up. And so I think that our culture and humanity in general, we struggle with commitment. And so we're taking a look at five things that change when we're committed to God and the impact that those things have on our world in a big way and in small ways, in the day-to-day of our lives. Again, last week, Ben led us on this amazing look at what it looks like to be committed to God in terms of our general lives and that the challenge with a relationship with God and life in general is that we cannot fully know, cannot fully know God unless we enter into a committed relationship with God. And today we're going to be looking at how that impacts friendship, and over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at how that impacts marriage, family, and church. But today, as I said again, we're going to be looking at risky friendships. I recently heard a quote from a guy named Seth McCoy. He's a pastor in Massachusetts, and he talked about how being committed to God invites us to be committed in our friendships, and that we want to explore what kind of impact that's going to have in those relationships and on our world. What do risky friendships look like? What does it look like to build strong bonds of friendship while the world is seemingly trying to tear us apart? Everyone's trying to get on top, but others are too, and we are, and instead we're being torn apart. Some of you may remember back in July, we were in a series called Summer Mixtapes, where we uh, first explored the reality that not everyone knew what a mixtape was anymore, uh, but that was a side point. But we explored the, one of the things we got to preach on, we got to preach on whatever we wanted, and so one of the things we chose was friendship. And what we found is that at its core, the biblical view of friendship has this central feature of friendship, and that's faithfulness. And we explored how it's an attitude of longevity, a, a willingness to wait with and wait for It's an image of a banner hanging over the person saying, no matter what else comes along, no matter what other things come my way, this is the person that I have chosen and that I'm committed to and will remain with. And we saw that this was how God befriended us. That's how we are called to befriend others. And we see this in Jesus, even as he's being betrayed by one of his followers, Judas Iscariot, in this act that is so famously known uh, where he kisses Jesus and it leads the enemies of Jesus to him and they capture him and kill him. In that moment, in Matthew 26, 50, Jesus says, as Judas approaches him, says, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. Now this word here for friend is a Greek word that is hetairos. I love the rolling R. Um, But it means a comrade, a mate, a partner, and a good friend. Jesus is saying, even in the midst of this betrayal, know my faithfulness to you doesn't end here. You can still step away from this. And even if you go through with this, my friendship, my faithfulness towards you, my banner over you that says, I have chosen you, it's not going to end. And so we discovered that our friendships don't have to be made or broken over things like how cool someone is, how being a friend to them benefits us, how it makes us feel. In fact, our friendships should look different. Where the world would say, I'm bailing on this friendship, we would say, 
I'm remaining in this friendship. And we remembered that in 2 Corinthians 5, it says we no longer see anyone in a worldly way, meaning in a way that what can they do for me? And I think that this reality that, uh, that, that friendship is, is, has this core aspect of faithfulness is true, but I want to talk about two aspects of that today. And the first one is vulnerability. Anytime we commit ourselves to friendship, we run the risk of being hurt. We become vulnerable. Now, everything I learned about vulnerability, I learned from Superman. That might seem odd, because uh, I've always loved the Superman character, that there's someone who, when they show up, the tide seems to turn for the better, that no matter how bad it gets, when Superman shows up, for the most part, it feels like, oh, there's good in the world, and good can overcome. And part of that is his character, that Superman's a good guy. Another part of it is he's really powerful. You want him on your side. In fact, one of his powers for many years was simply defined as being invulnerable, meaning Superman could not be hurt. Now, the writers of these stories quickly found that that's pretty boring, actually. And so for stories, they introduce kryptonite, and so that makes him weak, and he can be hurt, and then it turns out Superman's not invulnerable to magic, and they introduced other characters that were real threats to him. But as a kid, what I remember about Superman is that he could not be hurt. And so then people started talking about being vulnerable, especially as I entered into my faith, that people talked about, oh, we, we have to be vulnerable with one another. And, and to me, that simply meant, well, you can be hurt. And often when we talk about being vulnerable, I think we almost try and candy coat it, make it sound less risky and dangerous than it is. We talk about uh, just being honest. I'm going to be transparent. I'm going to be up front. And those are all part of it. But in terms of relationships, I think a better definition is loving and caring for someone in a way that puts us in a position to be hurt. Whether it's spouses, siblings, other relatives, friends, coworkers, classmates, teammates, neighbors, etc. When you enter into relationships, you put yourself in a position to both hurt and be hurt. This is what we see in Jesus. This is what Jesus did in order to befriend us. Jesus gave up his status and position in order to become one of us, and not just to become one of us and sort of rule over us in power like Superman and be invulnerable, but to be able to befriend us and be hurt by us. How many of us who are married have been hurt by our spouses or have hurt our spouses? How many of us who are part of a family have been hurt by our family or hurt someone in our family? How many of us have been hurt by a friend or have hurt a friend? And how many of us have seen someone stay with us through that? How many of us have said, yeah, I've been hurt, but I forgive? Because when we put ourselves into relationships where we can be hurt, there's also the greatest capacity for love to take place. But I believe it's only in this state of vulnerability, only in the state when we can reach openly to see each other for what we truly are, that we can begin to love. That in order to experience the true depth of friendship and the great ability for great love to be expressed there, there has to be a level of vulnerability because it requires us to give of ourselves. We look in the Old Testament, and I've referenced this friendship before, the friendship between two guys, Jonathan and David. Um, and I have a passage here I want to read. This is from 1 Samuel 18, 3 through 5. It says, And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as, he, as himself. 
Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. And whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. And this pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. Now there are lots of reasons why Jonathan did this for David. But one of the things it reveals is within the covenant of friendship between Jonathan and David, Jonathan did not consider his own reputation or status to be above that of his friend David. See, Jonathan was the son of the king of Israel, this guy named Saul. But Samuel, this prophet, had been talking with God, and God had revealed to him that Jonathan wasn't going to be the next king. It was going to be this shepherd boy named David. So Jonathan wasn't going to be the king. The heir apparent was not going to be the king. And yet, this shepherd boy who comes into his world and they become great friends is going to be the king. And whether he knew this or not, at some point he was willing to give up the things that defined him as the heir to the throne to his friend David in order that David could be successful. But it's not just that. These were Jonathan's identity. His cloak would have been a very specific cloak that would have only been worn by the prince. His armor and his weapons would have also been really specific to the son of the king, and they would have been vastly superior to any other military officer's weapons. So Jonathan, in giving him his weapons and armor, becomes vulnerable. He says, in this relationship, I don't need these. And not only does he get rid of them, but he gives them to the person he's entering the covenant with. Gives David the means to attack and defend. He becomes truly vulnerable. This is exceedingly difficult to do. And even more so to maintain. Anyone who has been in a relationship with this like someone knows that. That when the other person attacks and we've given up the means to defend by our choice, how difficult it is to stay in that space and not pick up the nearest stick or rock or whatever we can find, whether figurative or literal, and try to fight back. Or even just to find some place to hide. And the question we as followers of Jesus have to answer is how far are we willing to go in order to befriend someone? Jesus was willing to die, to give up his life, to be vulnerable, to love in a way that allowed those who he was extending love to to do immeasurable amounts of damage to him. That makes this a very difficult question to answer. But I want to say that with this, this vulnerability is all voluntary. There's no forced vulnerability. And we're not talking about relationships where people hurt you and you have not made a choice to love them in a way that makes it possible for them to do that. And all people should have the freedom to be able to decide whom they make themselves vulnerable to and under what circumstances. And where this gets really tricky is when there's a power aspect to this. We have to be careful that the level of vulnerability is appropriate and that someone who's already vulnerable due to rank, economic differences, ethnicity, cultural systems, maturity, or physical power discrepancies are not being forced to become more vulnerable with no choice. So being in this type of relationship is extremely difficult and it's a huge risk. Everyone involved risks being hurt. And many other philosophies and religions 
preach that the way to avoid pain in the world is to be disconnected. You don't want to be hurt by anyone? Don't give yourself to anyone. It's really simple. And there's truth to that. But that's not the kind of life I want to live. So the first part of being faithful in in friendship, I think, is being vulnerable. The second part of this comes from uh, the the great place we all go to to find advice on friendship, which is the book of Leviticus. Uh, 19, 16 through 18, it says, uh, Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that encourages your... Uh, endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly, so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now there's a lot of things going on here. This is basically a long section of do's and do nots in the book of Leviticus. But the one I want to focus on is this rebuke your neighbor frankly, so you will not share in their guilt. Now, this word here translated as rebuke uh, is the word yakach, um, and it means all these things to decide, judge, prove, convince, convict, reprove, chide, correct, rebuke. We got rebuke in there twice, didn't we? No, anyways. Uh, reason together and argue. And uh, it has this sense of confrontation to it. Right? And I don't know if you've ever confronted someone, but it's typically not something we all look forward to. But when you break that word down, you have the word con, which means together, and front, which means to face. And so the idea behind the idea of confronting someone is you take a look together, you face something together, and in this case it's talking about a relationship, and you come together and you look at what is working in the relationship and what is not. But you face it together. And then in that space, there is space for rebuke. And correction for reasoning and calling things what they are. These conversations that happen in this space are what one pastor called crucial conversations or fierce conversations. And he says they have three characteristics. The first one is they are high stakes. These are not how to fold towels or what the weather's been like or even what went wrong with the Seahawks. These are on a totally different level. There's a lot on the line in these conversations. The second is that there are opposing opinions. One person is vehement that things should be done one way. The other person is vehement that they should be done the completely opposite direction. And both people are holding very tightly to those ideas. And lastly, that there is high emotional content. That what you say and what you choose not to say in this instance has a disproportionate and large impact on the conversation and the person. Meaning, the words you use or don't use may have a larger impact than just the meanings of the words themselves. It's like that little thing on your side mirror that says uh, objects in mirror are closer than they appear. That in this case it should read, um, the words you use in this conversation, the ones you don't use, mean more than you think they do. Healthy friendships, where there's faithfulness, vulnerability, they can handle these crucial conversations. One of my favorite quotes about friendship, and I looked all over, I don't know who this is from, but it says, A friend is someone who listens to you BS, tells you to your face it's BS, and then listens some more. In our culture, we're at a time where we hear someone's BS, 
And we don't call it BS. Maybe we do. We typically do it uh, in a way where we're not facing them, uh, and we, then we leave. Not remembering that we all screw up. We all make mistakes. We all have areas of our lives where we can't see something clearly, and that is one of the reasons we need each other. And these crucial conversations are often the place where we get these things sorted out. But if you or I are a person who's going to bail as soon as someone confronts us with something, or if we're a person who's going to confront someone and then bail, then growth becomes really, really difficult. It becomes stunted and incomplete. And so we've got some areas so far. We've talked about vulnerability. We've talked uh, about kind of these crucial conversations, and we've talked about sort of uh, giving ourselves over. But what if staying in the relationship the way it is isn't an option? What if just hanging in there with someone isn't the way it can work? What if we're stuck somewhere between staying with things just the way they are or just getting out of town? It's these crucial conversations where we can set boundaries that are going to be helpful for people also. And I want to tell you a couple things about boundaries. Sometimes people think that boundaries are simply tools to help us not be hurt. And I think that's a hurtful oversimplification. Boundaries hurt also. Creating distance can be very painful. Creating boundaries is different from severing a relationship. Right? It doesn't mean that you've cut it off completely, even though for a time you might need to say, yeah, you know what, in hope for this to ever move forward again, I've got to step back, right? That is actually helpful. Some of us have been told that boundaries are weak. They're a way to get out of things, and I just want you to know that's not true. In fact, I want to give you a biblical example of boundary setting. It takes place between two folks, one guy named Jacob and one guy named Laban. Jacob came from a really troubled past. He fled from his homeland and his family, uh, he at one point uh, traded his brother, his older brother Esau, who had the birthright and all that stuff, next in line. Jacob uh, traded him for a bowl of beans because uh, Esau was sort of a primal guy and loved to eat and hunt. And so he came back from the hunt and Jacob was like, uh, Esau said, I'm really hungry and, and give me some of that stew you made. And, uh, and Jacob says, only if you give me the birthright. And Esau's like, fine, fine, whatever. Probably didn't measure it out very well in his head uh, but that trade was made but then Jacob went to his dad tricked his dad Jacob or Esau happened to be a very hairy guy so Jacob covered himself with animal skins and went into his dad and uh, and his dad was was blind couldn't see very well and so felt the arms was like man it sounds like Jacob but there's no denying the hairy arms so uh, and so Jacob tricked his dad out of the birthright out of the blessing and his mom helped him do this and so you can see the amount of dysfunction in his family and uh, Jacob leaves home because his brother's going to kill him and he runs and goes and lives with his uncle Laban his mom's brother uh, and while there his uncle tricks him into working 14 years for him in order to uh, give him his daughter's hand in marriage. There's lots of deception that happens in that. Um, and, and this is a gross simplification of the drama and dysfunction that has happened uh, at this point. But then Jacob, it continues, Jacob takes some livestock and starts to do some cool genetic things with them uh, and, and tricks Laban out of them. Uh, and it keeps going back and forth with this level of craziness. Okay. Now, and this is what, uh, this is, this is, they're at this breaking point, uh, and they're in this conversation, and Laban answers Jacob, uh, the women, and this is, uh, Jacob is left, and he's got, uh, he's got Laban's daughters with him, 
that he's married. The women are my daughters, the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks. All you see is mine. Yet what can I do today about these daughters of mine or about the children they have born? And he says, come now, let's make a covenant, you and I, and let it serve as a witness between us. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. He said to his relatives, gather some stones. So they took stones and piled them in a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha, and Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. That is why it, is, it was called Galid. But it was also called Mitzpah because he said, may the Lord keep watch between you and me when we are away from each other. And then he goes on, if you mistreat my daughters, or if you take any wives besides my daughters, even though no one is with us, remember that God is a witness between you and me. Laban also said to Jacob, here is this heap, and here is this pillar I have set up between you and me. This heap is a witness, and this pillar is a witness, that I will not go past this heap to your side to harm you, and you will not go past this heap and pillar to my side and harm me. These two guys set up boundaries. This word mitzvah means watchtower. And this, the idea is this, this watch, this, this heap we've made is watching. It's a watchtower between you and I. And I'm not going to cross this and harm you. And you're gonna, not going to cross this and harm me. The implication is that we're not going to intend to do evil to one another. And if I want to cross the boundary, it's because I'm intending to do good to you. I'm intending to bring a life. I'm intending to do well towards you. It's not that we're never going to see each other again, but this boundary was in place that left an open spot for some kind of relationship to continue. These conversations, these crucial conversations, are often where the boundaries can be set in order for the relationship to continue. Boundaries are not bad. And they're not contrary to being vulnerable. They are often what allows us to move forward in increased vulnerability. My friend and I cried in this coffee shop in Mount Vernon. I apologized and asked him to forgive me for not being a present friend. I had explanations for why I hadn't been there for him, but in the end, what he was saying was true. I had not been there in this time of need. This conversation changed my life because it was the first time I was confronted by a good friend where they were interested in staying in the relationship. Most other times when someone was saying something like this to me, it meant, and after this, I'm not going to see you anymore. Friendships like this are not easy. They are risky when we love in a way that we can be hurt we may need to form some boundaries, but as much as possible, we stay with it. We'll hang in there with someone as much as we can. Because this is how God relates to us. We've explored before God's faithfulness to us. We've seen God's movement to be vulnerable in sending his own son, Jesus, to us. And in doing so, allow us to hurt God. We see God's faithful presence with us. As we've not been left alone, but have been given the Holy Spirit as a constant guide and counsel to us. And we have God initiating crucial conversations with us all the time. And again, in this, we're reminded throughout, if we look at Romans 8, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what kind of friends are we going to be? In a broken world, how will we respond to the needs around us? I have a couple of questions that I'm going to put up on the, the screen in just a second that I want you to think through. Usually at this time, um, we give you a moment to write some stuff down, so we'll do that. If the worship team could come forward and the prayer team also, um, there will be people up here to pray for you if you have any responses to the sermon or even if you had stuff you wanted prayed for earlier and you didn't get a chance to get up there. And just a second after I pray, the worship team is going to play for a minute, uh, just some instrumental, and you'll have time then to write out your answers to these questions. And what we ask, if you do write those down on that connection card we talked about earlier, if you put those in the wood boxes, it gives us a great way to pray with you or to hear just how you're responding to the sermon or to other things going on. So it's uh, just a good thing to do. But here are the questions uh, I have for you. First, what kind of friendships do you have, risky or safe? Right? And I don't mean safe in the sense like this is a, a safe person where I can go and be honest with. I mean safe like I'm not going to enter in too deep. Uh, I'm going to keep everyone sort of at a distance. Um, so you're risky or safe. I want you to take a moment during the, the music time. I want you to think of your closest friends. And I want you to rest for a moment in these relationships. The people who are faithfully present to you people who are both vulnerable and you can be vulnerable with, people who can call you on things and say them back and forth, and people who won't leave you. Third, what area do you need help in in terms of friendships right now? Maybe it's being vulnerable. Maybe it's being able to enter into those delightfully fun, crucial conversations. Maybe it's forming boundaries. Maybe you're trying to learn how to do that, and you're in a space where, yep, in order to move forward, i got to create some boundaries. And maybe it's staying faithfully present. But what area do you sense that you need some help in? Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we'll give you some time to answer those, and then we'll continue in worship. God, um, what, do, what do we do? What do we do in a world um, that at times feels like it's just so difficult to to operate in. Um, God, I, I pray we would build different kinds of friendships. Ones based on being faithfully present uh, in the best ways that are helpful. Give us wisdom, God, to know when it's the right time to make boundaries in order that the relationship can somehow continue. Um, even if that means that that. We, we can't even see what that continuation looks like. It might be, you know what, for now I don't know, but I know I need some space in order for that to even be a possibility. Um, so, so just give us wisdom in how to know when it's time to, to do those things, when it's time to sit with someone and, and call them on their BS, and then when it's time to keep listening after we've done that. Lord, help us to be responsive when people call us on our stuff. Lord, we, we, we live in a world right now that I feel like we're trying to run and hide all over the place and pass blame. And every argument that happens, someone's, you know, you do this. And the person says, well, well you do this. 
right? And it's just all over the place. And so I pray you would help us be attentive to one another in ways that are helpful. And just as the, the song we sing during Advent, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, bid our sad division cease. Help us be friends. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.